Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for market intel, forecasts, and strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Bull. Thank you for being with us. This segment is brought to you by CommercialAgentSuccess.com. Check it out for the ultimate and commercial broker training. Well, today we have another special show for you. I look forward to this show every year. We're going to talk about the highlights of emerging trends in real estate 2021. Talk about trends and forecasts in commercial real estate. This is an incredible report. It's put together every year. It's been doing for 42 years. It's put out by PwC and the uh, Urban Land Institute. And we'll have a link to the actual report on the show at CREshow.com. But we're going to talk about some of the highlights here. Please welcome my guests. I have Andy Warren. He's Director of Real Estate Research at PwC. And Byron Carlock, he's a partner and he's the National Real Estate Leader. Gentlemen, thank you for being with us again this year. Thank you, Michael. Good to be with you. Well, it's always a pleasure to do something this certain in this time when everything's crazy. So it's great. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And what a year for you guys to be, be doing this report. I would think this show that we're doing today in this report um, should be uh, kind of one of the most interesting years ever. Um, first of all, tell us uh, in brevity, you know, what, how do you do this report? How does this come together? Uh, this is it's a, a series of interviews and an online survey. And to give you a perspective of what we did differently this year is we pushed everything back. We did everything in July, August, instead of starting in June and wrapping up by July, writing in September, and simply because we wanted the most relevant information that we could get. Great. And I love the, the um, um, who you interview. Uh, it's 38% private property owners. It's uh, real estate advisory firms, 17%, private equity investors, 12%, managers, 11%, bank and lenders, 9%. I mean, REITs, 3%. I mean, there's this is a real view of the entire industry, which I think is very interesting. It's a little bit like our show. It's not just one entity's or one person's uh, opinion, right, Byron? It's not just only your opinion? No, no, it's not. This is, this is empirical. Empirical research at its finest, and I think to be able to hear from ne nearly 2,000 people in the industry with their views about what we should be concerned about, what we should be thinking about, and how we should look at 2021, especially this year, uh, is is very instructive. Yeah, it's just like uh, with 1,600 of our best friends that are <laughs> top real estate around the country and get to talk to them and, and, and put together what they said. So let's talk about some of it. And chapter one is dealing with uncertainty. Um, and then you have 10 chapters below that. I'd like to touch uh, briefly on some takeaways from each one. And in, in the first chapter you have, are we home yet? It sounds like the kids in the back seat. <laughs> you know, that, that we are really touching on the work from home aspect that we all experienced, some by choice, some by mandate and how that got traction and suddenly became a, you know, a phenomenon that people are talking about for 2021 and beyond. Work from home is not new. It's always been in place. Uh, I've worked from home for eight years, but now everyone's experienced it. And so they're finding that there's aspects of it they really like, aspects of it that aren't so great. But when we survey people and talk to them about what's gonna happen in the future, there's a, fairly large percentage would love to work from home at least part-time. And what's that going to do to office space demand going forward? And 
what would I think be the it, model? I think it also pointed to those companies that were ready for it and those mm-hmm. that were not ready for it. So, you know, as Andy said, we began doing this about eight years ago, allowing our, our workforce to be flexible, work from home when they wanted to, come into the office when they needed to. Uh, and it was a both-and solution. And we watched associate, associate satisfaction go up and product, productivity go up. Um, but then I laugh at, I had one client call the second week of March saying, can you help me find laptops? Because I've got, I've got people that had to take their desktops home with them because we realized we did not have um, mobile connectivity with people to be able to work from home. And I, I think one thing we've seen in the practice is those companies that are realizing this is a longer term phenomenon, Michael, is they've got to be ready from a cyber perspective. They have to digitize more of their operations. They have to be more of a seamless, um, automated enterprise for uh, communication. And if this happens again, and I think some people thought they might need less office space. Now people are realizing they need both home solutions as well as office solutions. And it truly is a both and not an either or proposition. Well, it's interesting because, you know, we're, I guess just like you guys, we're hearing some clients and companies that say, oh, I don't need space or I need less space. But then we're seeing some companies really take down a lot of space and feel like to be competitive, uh, they're going to need all the advantages of, of having that space. And maybe some of you are saying, we think we need more space so our, our employees can feel comfortable. So what does it mean for the office sector moving forward? I think it's going to be it's going to be managing that process. It's really not you can't look at every employee the same way. And I think companies will identify who can work from home, when and how much. And then those who need to be in the office and kind of optimize the office for both those employees that are there and then optimize it for people that are coming and going. So I think it's it's going to be a little bit of a learning curve the next year or two years as they figure out exactly what works best in terms of footprint and employee satisfaction. Yeah, we're, we're a large user of space nationally, as you know, and I'm sensing uh, fatigue with respect to our folks wanting to see each other again, the need to be together for collaboration, whiteboarding, brainstorming, budget season. Uh, and then you think about the softer side of cultural inculcation. How do we, how do we relate to each other? How do, how do you as a new hire get to know the people that you work with, both those that you report up to, those that you have uh, with you as your peers and beneath. Uh, Creating a culture requires interaction and online interaction is different. And so we onboarded literally thousands of of graduates this summer that have never been into one of our offices and that's that's unusual. And it affects the way to um, bring them into your culture. Also training and product demonstration for, for companies involved with sales. It's really hard to do online product demonstrations and training. And so I think the office will be very important. You made, made a point that some are expanding. I think those companies that may have overdensified are having to look and literally get in with yardsticks and measure uh, social distancing needs and, and sanitation needs and air quality needs because they know that they need to have office space and some of them are realizing they need more. Hmm, that's what those yardsticks were for. <laughs> I thought they were for spanking my employees. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. If anyone is sensitive. All right. So office market, dead, not dead. I'm, I'm going to say it's going to change dramatically because there will be office environments that are relevant and those that are not relevant. So it may speed up the um, dealing with functional obsolescence in office space. I think 5G connectivity is going to be a very quick litmus test for office utilization and relevancy. 
I think um, location um, of hub and spoke operations is going to take some density out of the urban core where employers make it easier for folks to get to an office, but not necessarily drive to the urban core. And we've been going through this urbanization for over 15 years now. So we may see some suburbanization of office and you're seeing spikes in suburban leasing in most of the major cities. Uh, and so I think the way we use office space is going to be different, but I think it's still going to be an important asset class. Well, good. Well, that's a good transition to number two, um, the great American move. Tell us about that. Uh, definitely a trend that was uh, facilitated a little bit more by the work from home. And it's one of those trends that we've been talking about in emerging trends. We talked about, if everybody remembers, hipsterbia last year. Mm -hmm. Millennials finally forming households, want to buy a house, moving to kind of that cool suburb. Well, now when you're working from home and if you're in New York City, all the amenities are closed. You're in a small apartment with a significant other. You're both working from home. Suddenly, the idea of going to another city, either closer to family or where it's a lower cost of living, becomes very attractive. And you can do that. And it's not looked at as uh, out of the ordinary. So we're kind of seeing this transition of looking at those 18-hour cities, to use another emerging trends term, and, and beyond, even smaller cities. And we saw that kind of in our survey of what people thought of cities. We saw cities like Boise, Idaho, and uh, Cape Coral, Fort Myers, Florida, pop up way in the rankings, simply because people were thinking, I can live somewhere else and work there. So people are moving. And then it also gets back to Byron's comment about the suburb. Maybe I can go to the suburbs now because I'm only commuting into work two or three days a week. So I don't mind a little longer commute. Will we see people go to the traditional suburbs but maybe even begin to look a little further out, which would impact housing costs because the land costs would be a little cheaper. We've been a fairly stagnant from a mobility standpoint during this recovery, which was one of the unique aspects of it. But now I think maybe we may see more people move uh, and not necessarily change jobs, not move for a job, but just change uh, locations for choice. And Byron, does the great American move does that put some equilibrium in the kind of the secondary and tertiary markets compared to the core markets? Does it change anything there? I think it's accelerated some. You may remember we began talking about 18-hour cities four years ago, and some of them have really improved their quality of life to be more attractive to corporate relocations. And so corporate relocation activity is, in fact, picking up in some of the secondary cities. I think uh, Dallas, Austin, um, Nashville, Salt Lake City. And then the surprise this year was Boise, Idaho, which is getting a lot of the tech movement from the Bay Area. And so, yeah, this, the long answer to your question is yes. Okay, good. <laughs> Let's go to number three, um, reinventing cities post-COVID. So good transition there. Yeah, and this is this, the flip side. That This gets back a little bit to your, you know, your question, office dead or not dead, cities dead or not dead. Cities are still going to be vibrant. There's still going to be activities there. But you look at on the margin, you look at outdoor dining in New York City and the uh, significant uh, focus that has gotten. Will the cities begin to transform to offer some of those almost, you know, probably a blasphemous word to most urban uh, urbanizers, but, you know, suburban like amenities that you can find in the city. So you'll kind of have that choice between the two. It's going to take a lot of infrastructure investment but the cities are going to have to learn to operate in an environment where you may suddenly have 
an edict come down that stay off mass transit? How do they stay viable? How do you get people up into office buildings? So cities are going to transition to meet this, but they're, they're still going to be viable going forward. And, and hundreds of years, uh, well, hundreds, of, many decades of cultural development, educational development, and being talent magnets uh, is not going to um, eradicate urban popularity quickly. Right. And, uh, you know, once the Broadway theaters reopen and, um, you know, the, all the school campuses are in session and um, sports teams are playing again, I think the urban nexus points are going to be all the more important again. Yeah, I, I just can't see that people aren't want to. People are going to want to go back to the environments where you know, look in New York City. If you want to be the best uh, you can be at whatever you do, you know that's it's the place to be, right? And that's not going to change, is it? Now those cores are still going to be there, and they're still going to be vibrant. It's just going to be a little bit of a transition. It may take a little longer to get there due to the impact of the the pandemic, and not just people's concerns about safety, but also the fiscal impact, the costs of rebuilding the city. How, how long does it take? What would be your, your estimate that, that people get back into these cities? And I know it's contingent on what happens with COVID, but what would be your range of, I guess? You know, what we've been kind of analyzing it against is 9-11. After 9-11, everybody was, no one was going to be in a high-rise building again. Nobody would want to be in a big city. And so maybe that's a little slow for a year, two years, but I think you gradually start to get back. This may be a little faster simply from the fact that once we have a vaccine and people feel you know, that they're not going to catch a virus, they may come back. So I, I think we're looking at you know, a year, and that's just uh, my personal estimate uh, of when we begin to see activity normalize a little bit. Yeah, and I think I think hospitality conferences, conventions, okay, and large yeah. gatherings may take longer. Mm-hmm. It was it was surprising that the sentiment in the report suggested 2024 before we see large scale conventions again. Uh, you know, business travel is down 85 percent. Surely it's going to pop up some once we get a get vaccine and get some confidence. I know that you know there are um, our folks are certainly ready to get on planes again and see our clients and see our our people. And I think many people are in the same boat. Yeah, like- going through the interviews, that was uh, just to echo Byron's point. The one thing that everyone agreed on is that the days of getting on a plane, flying across the country for a one hour meeting and flying back may be over. Maybe over. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that, may be, exactly. that may be the one thing. Now, we'll see, because I've also heard people say if you're willing to get on a plane and do that, you may have a competitive advantage. But that's that was one thing that everyone was thinking about. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, if you're going to list an $80 million office building with me, I will still do that. You will still do that. <laughs> that will go away very quickly. All right, let's go to number four, accelerating the retail transformation. Uh, that was really, you know, you look at, we've been talking about for several years that retail was changing. E-commerce was, you know, gaining traction. People were getting more comfortable with it. Now you take an event where you literally tell non-essential retail, first of all, we define non-essential retail, that you have to close. So most of the malls across the country, large shopping centers, literally shut their doors for three months. Well, the financial impact of that and the number of bankruptcies that we've seen has literally been pulled forward. May have happened in two or three years, but we had it all happen this summer. So we're really looking at how do you re, you know, how does retail reinvent itself going forward? First of all, fewer stores, you know, and that's no surprise. We've been talking about that. 
but now we've got different owners. We have malls buying retailers. They're now partners getting together. How are they going to position themselves? And then the surge in e-commerce will moderate back. But there were a lot of people who had never used e-commerce used it during this shutdown. So they're going to be comfortable with it. So some of it's going to stay there. So we're going to see continue to see more of this merging of bricks and mortar e-commerce to give the customer what they want. It was clearly an acceleration of a trend that had already begun, and then it really, really, really spiked. Um, and so I think we already knew that retail had to go through a transformation. We already knew that uh, there were some retailers that were really struggling to maintain their relevance, and the pandemic accelerated those uh, haves and have-nots. I will tell you, though, that with so much money still being spent inside four walls, and I think um, you know, somewhere between 80 and 85%, even during the pandemic, have been spent in four walls. Um, brick and mortar is still relevant, but the, re the experience of visiting a brick and mortar store has to be special. It has to either meet uh, a necessity need or you're going there to learn about products and be served. And so it's really putting a burden on retailers to rethink the way they deliver in-store and then the efficiency by which they deliver e-commerce. And what do you think, gentlemen, about the, the rebound of retail? Seems like a lot of people have been uh, unable to spend money um, and they've been saving more money. Um, but a lot of people out of work uh, is the retail, uh, the consumer have the confidence and the money. And how might that uh, affect uh, a rebound in retail? Yeah, I think uh, we're, this kind of drifts a little bit into the economic recovery story. And if you think about a K-shaped recovery where the top end, the people that could work from home, haven't seen much of an impact on their uh, income, they've got pent-up demand. And I, you know, we were beginning to see discussions about that they may spend more this holiday season. Uh, the lower side of the K, that group is going to struggle. So we may see a little more diversification in which retailers do well and which ones don't uh, kind of in the next six months or so. Okay. All right. Let's go to number five. And that is uh, from just in time to just in case. <laughs> <laughs> this was one we, we wanted to involve because industrial was clearly the winner in this year's survey. Uh, people, you know, fulfillment centers have been the top uh, property type in our survey over the last three or four years. That didn't, it certainly didn't wane during this period. If you look at forecasts, you know, the rent growth is still positive for most industrial. What has changed a little bit is first we had a trade war, which disrupted supply chains. Now we have a pandemic, which has hit supply chains again. So this thought about we need to have just in case. So I may bring in more raw materials and store them so I have them on hand. I may produce more products now and store them so I can have them if we ever have a disruption again. So we're back to something that really haven't talked about a lot in this country in the last 30 years, which is, am I prepared going on? Everyone's been running so lean. So it's kind of that just in case. So that's really kind of boosting the traditional warehouse market as opposed to that that's uh, dependent on e-commerce. And, and, and Andy, that, that, that was ahead, a bit of a, it was a bit of a surprise to us to see the extent to which um, industrial real estate demand was spiking because of greater control of the supply chain. I think many manufacturers ended up being surprised themselves as to how many component parts, even small parts, they were dependent on from foreign sources that were going to delay manufacturing. Uh, I was with a, a large manufacturing client a couple of weeks ago sharing with their own epiphany of how much they were dependent on foreign 
um, component sources, and those component sources literally stopped production of certain products. And now we see it in the stores. If you look, if you go to look for certain appliances, certain furniture, uh, inventories are pretty low on the showroom floors. And um, that's because some of those components had been sourced abroad. How does that impact jobs uh, in America? Do we have more uh, businesses uh, manufacturing and, and doing business here in the States from this? Yeah, and that's one of the, you know, the just in case uh, component of it that doesn't get talked about as much is that near shoring. You suddenly decide to manufacture closer to where you're going to sell. So we may see, you know, we a lot of it has been in Europe to this point where they're doing moving more manufacturing closer to the final market. But we may again see that in the U.S. where you go, okay, I'm going to make it here so that it's here and I don't have to worry about any kind of disruption in my shipping. So the biggest downfall to that is training employees to do the new manufacturing jobs. And in the state or metro area that figures that out first may have an upper hand in attracting those types of new jobs. Yeah. Okay. All right. We're going to take a quick break and stay with us. We're going to go over five more of the chapters. And one of them uh, is really interesting to me about the economy stumbles, but uh, real estate sector hangs on. So stay with us uh, and we'll talk about it more. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Stay with us. Site selection, marketing, and property due diligence has just changed. Check out Vista Property Report slash CRE Show. That's Vista Property Report slash CRE Show. Use promo code CRE Show. You will love this product. Are you looking to buy, sell, or lease commercial real estate? You're invited to contact Bull Realty for customized asset and occupancy solutions. Call 404-876-1640 or visit bullrealty.com. Would you like to be the top producing commercial broker in your office? Check out Michael Bull's video training. Since you're a show listener, you receive 10% off your first purchase. At checkout, use discount code CREshow. Visit commercialagentsuccess.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. This segment is brought to you by my company, Bull Realty. For customized asset and occupancy solutions, visit bullrealty.com. Well, today we're going over emerging trends in real estate, the annual report. This is the 2021 report. My guests are Andy Warren and Byron Carlock with PwC. And we're hitting some of the highlights and takeaways from this report. Uh, remember, we'll have a link to the actual report at our site. Uh, it's CREshow.com. And, and gentlemen, number six um, is location, location, Safety? Wait, you're messing up the old saying. Yeah, that's what, maybe the maybe the third component of the what's valuable real estate is safety, and it gets back to the uh, notion that part of the problem people are having getting employees back to the office is the employees want to feel safe when they're there, and the employers want them to feel safe. So suddenly, you know, the idea is, will your cleaning protocol be more uh, more important in amenity than the fancy break room you had? You're kind of making that trade-off. People might value that more 
have a competitive advantage going forward? Does your building have the highest tech HVAC system that exchanges the air every 15 minutes so you, you know, employees don't think they're gonna get anything virus? Uh, the other component of touchless restrooms, touchless water fountains, uh, if you even have water fountains, everything, it's gonna be a bit of a tech influenced uh, recovery in that and I, and I think it will fit. Uh, we were talking about retail earlier, um, you know, touchless checkout. You don't interact with a, a cashier. You don't hand them your credit card. Uh, we've all probably at some point experienced checking into a hotel without ever going to the front desk. So I think there's gonna be a lot of components of this that this will stick, I believe, even after we have a vaccine, people are gonna to wanna to maintain that cleanliness. I hope so. Yeah. And I think it, it opens the door for PropTech to really grow. Mm -hmm. So we began identifying Technology applicable to the real estate industry is important probably three or four years ago, and this really accelerated uh, the touchless key entry, the uh, touchless access for security, all of the things that PropTech is delivering to the industry that may have been nascent or emerging are now coming full, um, full frontal um, for presentation, discussion, and purchase. So I would imagine there are going to be some big winners in the PropTech prop space. Yeah. Yeah, it seems archaic to me, even uh, really before this pandemic, that if I go into an office building, I go up, get in the elevator. If I go to the restrooms, that that why do I have to touch what you know thousands of other people have touched? So uh, I think if one thing good comes out of this pandemic, it may be that we have a healthier environment. So I hope that sticks. Let's go to number seven, which I find really interesting. Um, the economy stumbles and the real estate sector hangs on. Tell me about that. Yeah. Man. This is, you know, we, we, we looked at this. You have an economy that has a mandated recession. Nothing was broken that caused this. We didn't have a supply, you know, disruption in oil. We didn't have a, a breakdown of the financial markets like we had in the global financial crisis. We were just shut down. And then in the response to this, we have a Federal Reserve who steps in with monetary policy and backstops, you know, asset values, including real estate, and they have said that they'll keep interest rates at extremely low levels for at least the next two to three years. That's been a very comfortable environment for real estate valuation where you're thinking, do I need, I don't have to take a 10, 20, 30% write down, which we saw in the REIT industry. You initially saw that big drop. So it's given a little cushion for the next period uh, going forward. Now, how long it takes the uh, economy to recover, that's going to have an impact on real estate. But initially, real estate has gotten a little bit of a buffer. And I think that's a good thing over the, you know, no knee jerk reactions in terms of things. Totally agree. I mean, if you think about it, Michael, we've, we're old enough to live, have realized we've lived through several of these cycles. And this one is not a supply driven issue. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some demand interrupters, and we have to watch those demand interrupters um, um, carefully. But the, the industry, I think, is going to be fine this time. And we can go on record as saying this downturn is not the industry's fault. Yeah, well, and that's good. Yeah, and we don't, we're not, we don't have so much debt uh, on mm -hmm. our properties. We have stronger banking, right? We've got a lot of capital uh, in the market. Uh, yeah, and as you say, we're not overbuilt. But uh, uh, there, there definitely is some disruption on, on values on some of these properties, mm -hmm. as we know. Um, and as Sam Zell said, this may be the cycle where we realize we're not overbuilt. We are, in some cases, uh, under-demolished. Right, right. All right, let's talk about number eight, the great fiscal challenge. 
And this uh, is, we've talked about, but we had cities shut down. And let's be honest, a lot of cities across the country were struggling with their budgets anyway, in terms of providing services. And this isn't gonna help. So you're, you're looking at, you've got the cost of the pandemic, you've eliminated sales tax revenue in a lot of major metropolitan areas. Uh, eventually there's gonna be an income tax hit when this begins to roll through. And then as you mentioned, uh, the impact on valuations of properties, do you have a property tax hit? So there's gonna be a little, we have not been able to reach any kind of stimulus deal for the metropolitan areas or large scale one that would offset this. But the fear among the people that we interviewed this year was that real estate will be looked at as some way to help make up some of that shortfall in a number of cities. So we could see higher property taxes. You could see uh, rising service fees, uh, transfer taxes for properties when you go to sell them. So that's really the concern is, is real estate going to be in, end up picking up the cost for some of these end our revenue shortfalls that these cities may be facing. Yeah, all you rich real estate people, y'all need yeah, that. Exactly. <laughs> and and certainly, certainly a reason also to get people traveling again, because the hotel mm -hmm. tax and the convention visitation are very important to many cities. And, um, you know, those cities that invested in big convention centers and convention hotels certainly need to see traffic in those. Yeah, yeah. Let's hope uh, people start traveling soon and feel comfortable doing so. All right, let's go to number nine. Affordable housing crisis likely to explode without intervention. What do you mean by that? Uh, the you know the reaction to the pandemic was was a good one. Eviction moratoriums, you know, freezing rent. Uh, you know, people were not were given an option, so they weren't immediately kicked out of their homes if they couldn't pay their rent. Well, the perhaps the unintended consequence of that is if you have an eviction moratorium that ultimately becomes a rent control being voted in without actually going through the process. So I can't collect rent on that unit, but I can't kick the people out. And then we haven't seen as much uh, relief for the landlord or the owner on the other side of that. My tenant doesn't have to pay. I can't get them out. But then how am I paying for my maintenance and keeping the property up or paying my property taxes or paying my lender and so we're seeing kind of this uh, uh, owners and landlords being caught between a rock and a hard place. What do they do with that? And ultimately, the housing affordability issue is lack of supply. So we need more supply. If we're squeezing the people that might be providing that supply, where's that going to come from? Now, Those rich real estate people, we're squeezing yeah, exactly. them. Huh? If it's no, there, no. It, it was terrific to see a major bank announce this week or last week that they were going to commit $30 billion to affordable housing uh, loans, which I think is terrific. Uh, it, it, was, it was published earlier this year that the average um, homeowning family has a net worth of nearly $200,000, and the average net worth of a renting family is as low as $5,000. So that disparity has great societal implications as we seek to try to find some restoration to a viable middle class, the American dream has been centered around home ownership. And so I think um, homeowners, developers, um, neighborhood planners, city planners are, are all having to come together to rethink zoning, variance rules, uh, the NIMBY, the NIMBY um, issues that have caused people to not want affordable housing nearby them. I think this is a real opportunity for us as an industry to take a leadership role to create neighborhoods of inclusion, to create cities that inspire affordable housing as part of development plans, 
and to improve our zoning and variance processes to allow more types of product to be built, to allow modular housing, to focus on zero waste on the site, to think about um, uh, better utilizing land, introducing tiny houses to neighborhoods. There are so many things that the industry is offering that cities have yet to catch up to. And uh, even something as simple as changing parking requirements. All of those play into the ability to deliver more housing, some of which can be affordable housing. Amen, brother. Can I get an amen? Yeah. <laughs> Let's do all of that. And it's time. I think one of the great I think one of the greatest outgrowths of this year's report is our industry spokespeople through this sentiment process, this survey process, stepping up saying it's time for us as an industry to take leadership in solving some social problems around affordable housing, in racial equity, neighborhood inclusion, ESG, environmental sustainability. I'm really proud of the industry and how we're stepping up this year in this by being more vocal about our desire to take leadership roles in making changes. Well, if I start singing, that's because I feel like I'm in the choir over here. <laughs> All right, that would yeah, yeah. perfectly right into number 10. From moment to moment, racial and social equity. Tell us about it. Yeah, but uh, this is, you know, uh, unfortunately, this, you know, ro rose out of a tragic event. It wasn't uh, caused by the pandemic. It just happened to co coincide with it. And the industry began to take a good hard look at itself, uh, the, the issues that Byron mentioned, and realize that there is an opportunity to make change because real estate touches everything from where you live, where you work, how you recreate, everything's involved in it. And so that opportunity is there. And then, you know, let's not be, you know, to take a little bit of a, the altruistic point of it. It's simple economics in the U.S. when you look at, like Byron mentioned, the di differential between household wealth. If we spread that out to a greater group, everyone benefits. If we look at what our employee workforce is going to look like 20 years from now, everybody benefits if we start fixing this now. And, and the industry was very adamant about the people we talked to about, okay, we have to do this. We're not, we're not blameless. We didn't cause the problem, but we have an opportunity to fix it. Yeah, and these shutdowns, they really hurt the economically challenged. Yes. Yeah, the lower end of that K is still getting hurt by this. So Yeah. Byron, you have something to add to that? No, no. I think that says it well. And I'm I'm once again just uh eager to see our industry make make progress. Uh and I think you know, in your market in Atlanta, you have uh two great examples of that with what uh happened down at uh Pinewood Forest on the south side and Serenby as uh, as relatively affordable, environmentally sensitive communities that have stepped forth with a profit motive, but have also broadened home ownership. Yeah. Yeah. But some of my folks said, uh, Michael, the CEO of our firm, you know, we're a regional firm in the Southeast. They said, you need to say something about social racial equity. And I said, well, sometimes when people say something, it gets turned around on them. Uh, why don't you just look at our um, our profile of our brokers and I think I say something, by the way, I've been hiring all my life. Uh, and, you know, people who uh, don't hire, uh, you know, people should hire based on good people. Uh, there's, there's bad people of, of every, every essence, you know, every race in every, you know, walk of life. So, um, all right, well, let's, let's talk about a, a wrap up here when, uh, 
you guys do these interviews, you, you do these presentations. It's an incredible report. I, I, I urge everyone to read it. Again, we'll put a link here. Um, what would be your overall takeaways, gentlemen, uh, after going through all this? I think it, it was interesting this year because everyone was focused on very similar issues. And usually people are all over the board. Everyone's focused on this. So it's going to be a unique time period going forward. Those top trends really kind of tie together and impact. So we'll see as we position ourselves for 2021, Does is that a good thing that everyone's looking at the same things going forward? Or, and then will we find ourselves building on them going forward? And, and, and I hope so, uh, just from a standpoint that most of them are going to be good for uh, work-life balance, for, uh, as Byron mentioned, social uh, equity and the you know, of housing affordability. We have a chance to really make something good kind of come out of a very bad situation. And I'd add, I would add a topic that we didn't touch on very much today we were, because we were more thematic was, was the markets themselves. Usually mm -hmm. in this report and for the last 42 years, cities have vied to be in the top 10. This year, it's been all about themes and how are we going to get back to work and what's good for society. Yet the, the markets have been clustered and Andy did a great job looking at four groups that we call the magnet markets, those, those markets that are growing because they're in business friendly states the establishment markets that are solid performers, the niche markets that have risen uh, out of some of our comments around hipsterbia last year, they've, they've really created reasons that they're especially attractive. And then the backbone markets, some of which are rebuilding themselves to become more attractive. And so as we look at the markets, we can see that seven years ago, everything was focused on the sexy six markets on the coasts of Boston, New York, DC, Miami, LA, San Francisco. And then we started watching the emergence of the 18-hour cities. And now we're looking at the cities where they are focused on business attractiveness, as well as quality of life, as well as workforce training. And they're falling into these four buckets very interestingly. And so I think we're watching the evolution of our real estate markets um, real time. And, and that goes along with what you mentioned earlier, talking to more people. And that market evolution is... There are great opportunities for people in all of these markets. Indeed. And we're not just talking to national investors. We're talking to local players who find great opportunities in some of the smaller markets. So that, that was kind of behind the idea of let's break these down a little further. Yeah, really smart. And what did you get from this process related to the, um, the choice between uh, health and economy? You know, with these shutdowns, you know, we mentioned that it really... Uh, hurts the economically challenged, all these shutdowns. I know uh, I've seen um, uh, one gentleman uh, interviewed on air who said that, you know, look, guys, if you, if you city, you shut down business, I can't feed my children and I can't pay my rent. So you, you're going to make me homeless uh, and hungry uh, immediately. Uh, so uh, when, you, when, you, when you look at the choices between the economy and how it devastates people, including their health, and then the health from COVID. Uh, what did you hear about that? It, it, uh, an increased awareness about how thin the safety net is in certain places. It's kind of a, a one event, you know, granted a major event. But as you mentioned, you take away and shut down that business for two weeks, the immediate impact on people's lives and 
that's begun. That was something that probably in the last two or three years, some of the cities that had more of a homeless issue were talking about how do we strengthen that safety net to prevent that from getting larger. And I think that's that was really what we were talking about or hearing people talk about. We had this, then how do we strengthen that so this doesn't happen again? Or we fill up some of those holes that people are slipping through. And what do we do now? I mean, do we open more schools? Do we open more mm-hmm. more businesses? Uh, but, or do we look at the ongoing shutdowns that we're seeing for for the COVID risk? Mm-hmm. Uh, is that more important at the end of the end of the day? Yeah. Any any consensus from from the interviews? You know, uh, like the rest of the country, no. <laughs> <laughs> we have very, very broad and very, uh, to yeah. some extent, divisive uh, ideas on what we should have done or what we should do going forward. So I think, that- yeah, and I think our industry is is made up of a lot of optimists that had would like to have believed two weeks ago we were pointing toward uh, manageable uh, processes, getting back to work, planning on um, a, a fruitful um, recovery in the late fall and into the winter. And then the last two weeks, we've been plagued with spikes again. And so now I think people are scratching their head going, oh, my goodness, if Europe's an example, we're we're hunkered down again for the winter. And I think that's that's casting a new pail over us. Final question for you guys um, it involves the economy um, and the uh, rebound. As you said, there's been some more kind of news uh, on the vaccines, uh, testing being delayed. Uh, we still have a lot of cities and places you know, shut down, locked down. And then the economy's been affected all over the world. So, you know, what was the your what's your takeaway there from the, from this process of emerging trends on how the economy rebounds and, and when? Yeah. The first thing, uh, um, it's not going to be easy, and it's not going to be even. We're not going to turn around and then March twenty twenty one. If we have a vaccine, everybody's going to be back to normal. There's going to be this transition period. And it's going to happen in different markets. To Byron's point about you know the surging cases kind of rolling from one city to the next, it's I, th- I think it's similar to when your foot goes to sleep, <laughs> it begins to wake up. If you stand up too fast, you fall over. If you give it a little time and things begin to work out, and you get a little more feeling, and you kind of go, I think that's what the economy is going to do. It's going to if we stood up right away, we'd fall back over with these cases. So people are going to kind of ease into it, and it'll. It'll be very different based on where you're at in the U.S. and how it's been handled to point from that. No question that it probably gets back to where we were before, just simply because, as I mentioned earlier, nothing's broken. There's nothing that we have to fix from a you know financial perspective or from a supply perspective. It's just getting people confident again and feeling better about it. Get them working and spending, right? Exactly. Kind of get back that confidence level that you want to do You'll go out and get on a plane and go on vacation and enjoy. Byron, Byron, final thought. I'm hopeful for um, a recovery that's stronger than the K, but that's what it looks like right now. And I'm um, I'm pleased to see the desire for folks to get back into the workplace, for investment to continue, and for us to approach uh, some normalcy. I'm also hopeful that after the election, some of the rancor calms down and we can get back to um, civil discourse and and appropriate engagement to make progress and not foster anger. Amen. (laughs) Very well said. Andy Warren, Byron Carlick, thank you, gentlemen. Great information. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate it. All right. And thank you for joining us. 
uh, around the country. Let us know what you think. We appreciate uh, hearing from you and uh, sharing the show. And uh, this month, October, uh, we are celebrating 10 years of doing the show with a new show every week for 10 years. And we're sharing some behind the scenes information about the show and unfortunately about the host as well. So please join us on your favorite social media. And until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh and join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Appreciate the show? Consider referring business or doing business with our sponsors. Bull Realty is a commercial real estate sales, leasing, and advisory firm doing business throughout the Southeast, headquartered in Atlanta. Visit bullrealty.com for more information. Vista Property Report slash CRE Show. Incredible analysis using smartphone technology. Commercial Agent Success Strategies provides video training for commercial agents. This training gets five-star reviews from even the most experienced brokers. Learn more at CommercialAgentSuccess.com. You're invited to connect with us on your favorite social media. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Don't miss a show of special interest to you. Be sure and subscribe to the show on YouTube and Apple Podcasts. And at the show website, CREshow.com, you can subscribe for a weekly email announcing the show topic and guest. While you're there, you also found more videos and podcasts. Thank you for watching or listening to America's Commercial Real Estate Show.